Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Ivy Alexander, Ph.D., APRN, ANPBCFAAN, who is professor at the Yale University School of Nursing. Today we will discuss menopause and osteoporosis. Ivy is also midlife women's health consultant and nurse practitioner at Yale Health. Her clinical, scholarly, and research interests are in midlife women's health care. She is the lead author with Carla A. Knight, RMSN, of two titles, 100 Questions and Answers About Menopause and 100 Questions and Answers About Osteoporosis and Osteopenia. She has worked extensively with menopause and osteoporosis management and has published and presented widely regarding these subject areas, including these two books, which have been translated into Spanish, Greek, and Italian. She has been principal investigator on studies evaluating women's relationship with their primary care providers, black women's perceptions of menopause, midlife health risks, and self-management techniques used to manage menopause symptoms and reduce health risks, and osteoporosis risks and management. She has consulted for national and international companies such as Athena Medical Products, Medscape, Wyeth, Ayerst, Duramed Pharmaceuticals, Pfizer, Roche, Venus Medical Communications, Ellie Lilly, Amden, DepoMed, and Data Monitor. Ivy, welcome. Thank you so much. Before we get started on the topic proper, would you tell us about that string of credentials behind your name? I think everybody's familiar with PhD, but would you tell us what the other three letters groups start uh, stand for? Of course. In Connecticut, the license for practice for advanced practice nurses, um, including nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, and others is APRN, so that's the second piece. The third piece is ANPBC, which says that I'm a board-certified adult nurse practitioner, and adult nurse practitioner covers care of individuals from adolescence to death. My area of clinical interest and expertise happens to be midlife women's health. In my clinical practice, um, when I'm not taking care of women having hot flashes or bone questions, I see students, adults, um, all the way up through the age span. And the last credential is FAAN, which means that I'm a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. The American Academy of Nursing is an organization um, that's national, which recognizes, actually it's international, which recognizes um, nurses who have um, done extraordinary things. And you are nominated by other individuals and have to write a brief explanation of your work and then a committee of colleagues looks at that um, blinded information and identifies which people might be the most appropriate people to be part of that organization, which is considered within the world of nursing to be fairly prestigious. And I was extremely honored to become a fellow a couple of years ago. Well, congratulations. That sounds uh, like quite the honor. Thank you. Ivy, according to what information I was able to find, we are looking at very large numbers of people who have menopause and osteoporosis. Before we get into the numbers, would you help us define what are we talking about when we say menopause? What does that mean in in practical terms? That's a fabulous first question because it's actually not terribly clear. Menopause is one day. What happens is a woman um, stops having her period, and after 12 full months of having no period for no other reason than the fact that it's her body's time to stop, then she has menopause. And that day is when you actually are menopausal, that you have sort of passed from premenopause and perimenopause to postmenopause. So it's the day of the 12th month anniversary of not having a period for only natural reasons. And, of course, the, the point at which you reach menopause is a finite moment in time, as it were, but the process of actually getting to menopause is something that can take years. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, perimenopause is thought to continue for six to ten years prior to that menopause day, um, and then postmenopause, the sort of um, highlighted time period is probably about five years 
after that year of having no periods, um, for many women, symptoms continue for much, many, many years longer. And this point that we're calling the sort of before menopause and after menopause or postmenopause, perimenopause, all these words that help us define, to divide, they matter because this point signifies changes physical and emotional in the life of a woman. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? I think one of the biggest changes is the reproductive potential because postmenopausal women cannot become pregnant. Perimenopausal women can. Premenopausal women can. And um, in fact, the second highest unintended pregnancy rate happens among perimenopausal women. You know, women are older, they start skipping periods. You hear from maybe friends and colleagues who possibly are trying to get pregnant and having trouble at it. And then you don't always know that even though you've skipped three or four periods, the next month your body might go ahead and ovulate and then potentially you're having intimate relations with your partner, having sex with a male partner. And, you know, women show up in my office saying, I still haven't had periods, but I'm having all these other symptoms. You know, we do a pregnancy test and they're kind of alarmed. One of the concerns for women who are nearing menopause or postmenopausal is osteoporosis. And what exactly is osteoporosis? Would you help us understand that? Osteoporosis is defined as a person who has bone density that's more than 2.5 standard deviations lower than the average young healthy woman who's the same racial background as the individual. Um, we do bone density testing to identify and diagnose osteoporosis, and that's done in addition to a clinical evaluation and um, usually laboratory testing. And with all of that information gathered together, we can identify how much bone has been lost. Um, the risk of osteoporosis in and of itself is not a big deal because it's not a painful condition. It's something that could happen to someone and they'd never know about it. The problem is that it increases very significantly the risk for having a fracture. And many people know someone who has either had a vertebral compression fracture, meaning that one of the vertebra in the back got squished, and it can be very painful, but it can also change how they look. They get that sort of hunched back look if it happens to many of them. And also individuals could fall just in the activities of their daily life and either break a wrist or an ankle or more worrisome, a hip. Um, the number of individuals who have fractured a hip that are able to go back to their normal lives is only about 25%. About 25% die, and the other half are institutionalized because they can't care for themselves after such an important uh, life-changing fracture. So the whole focus on raising awareness about osteoporosis, trying to prevent it, and trying to treat it is really to treat and prevent fracture. Let's go back then to menopause, just for the big picture perspective a moment, if you would. According to the University of Maryland Medical Center, there are an estimated 50 million women in the United States that have reached menopause. This was with a, the, one of the statistics I was able to find, although I couldn't get a date. Would you say that that's about right? I know it's hard to have exact numbers. I'd say that's a little low. The North American Menopause Society estimates that about 6,000 women become postmenopausal daily in the United States. So how many women are we talking about that are in menopause right now that have reached menopause would you say I'd have to, I'd have to look up the exact number um, the the um, interesting thing is that women are continuing to live much longer post-menopause so issues like osteoporosis and heart disease and other diseases that affect women disproportionately after they've passed through menopause are areas of significant interest to people like myself who focus on midlife women's health let me see if I can find for you quickly um, why don't you ask me the next question, if that's okay, and I'll look for this and come back to it as soon as I have the data. I don't want to tell you the wrong numbers. Certainly. Now, this is why I said perhaps you had numbers, because the numbers that I did find had no date. I did find some other data from the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists mm -hmm. Women's Health 
facts 2011 that says the same thing you said 6,000 women reach menopause every day right. uh, the thing that uh, I thought was surprising was that it says that 40% of women's lives are being spent in the postmenopausal stage so right. that I'm sorry go ahead right that's exactly what I was just saying is that so many women are living much much longer after menopause that we have to pay much, much greater attention to what's happening after menopause and sort of where, you know, those different disease processes that are much more likely to be problematic at that time, like heart disease and like bone health and cancers. Now, of course, I think for a lot of people that think about menopause, one of the first things that comes to mind are irregular periods, which you just mentioned, and hot flashes and night yeah, sweats. Hot flashes. <laughs> That's the biggest reason people come to see me. Is that right? Absolutely. In terms of their impact on quality of life in the short and long term, what would you say are the most important symptoms or accompanying characteristics of menopause? The most important issues are hot flashes, and it's because hot flashes are involved with a cascade of other issues. It interferes with sleep, and that means that it's difficult to think and function properly, which affects mood and performance both at home and at work. Um, women have uh, vaginal dryness, many, many women, and that affects comfort and sexuality. Um, the, so we talked about hot flashes, and that affects sleep, and that affects cognition and thinking. We talked about vaginal dryness, which affects, um, can also increase the risk for urinary symptoms like urinary <clears throat> um, incontinence or dribbling and sexuality. Um, some women also are highly concerned about skin changes. One of the things that you hear sometimes is that women get very irritable, that their personalities change when they reach menopause and that they become very tough in their relationships. Sometimes the, a lifelong relationship ends up in divorce. Are these causally linked to menopause? Possibly. They might also just be aging and life changes that are happening. Um, one of the... Uh, Interesting things is that I did in my research, you know, the women talked a lot about their symptoms at midlife, and definitely the irritability is linked to sleep or lack thereof more accurately. And also, there are women who say, you know, they've put up with whatever for how many years, and they're not going to put up with it anymore. There's sort of a um, coming of age that happened to a lot of women around the menopause transition. And women in my research and in my practice have described it to me that, you know, I'm almost at like half point in my life and it's time to stop and take stock. And there's a large amount of research that's also been done out in this um, Seattle area in a large um, midlife women's study run by Nancy Fugate Woods and her colleagues. And they found the same thing, that women are at this midlife and they're deciding to kind of look back through what have they done, what have they accomplished, are they where they want to be or not, and what do they need to do to change it? And sometimes part of that self-life assessment is, you know, I'm not going to um, work this huge job that's equally as demanding and important and valued as my partner and then also be responsible for all the cooking and cleaning and laundry and whatever else has to do with running the home. And women sort of tell me that they get a bit... Um, you know, more full of themselves, if you will. Now, these are words that are from the women in my research study, so it may resonate with um, some of your listeners. It's not necessarily me deciding that this is what people are saying, but they get tired of it. They're fed up. Now, is that definitely related to menopause, or is it sort of a coming-of-age thing that happens with everyone? You know, on the other side of the coin, speaking of male partners, now sometimes, of course, there could be two women partners, but if the woman has a male partner, there's also that quote-unquote midlife crisis. So perhaps there's some sort of equal parity thing that happens as we age that we start to kind of look back, take stock in our lives. Have we accomplished what we wanted to? Are we doing what we want to do with our lives? Do we need to make changes? And if so, wow, I'm like around 52. Maybe I need to do it quickly because I've already lived possibly more than half of my life. 
And so it might be related to menopause, but it might also just be related to where we are in our lifespan and how we developmentally change and look at and evaluate our lives. One article that I read said that the changes were triggered by the hormonal changes that women were undergoing as they entered menopause, that the hormones they had had all their lives were establishing a familial link that was making the women give priority to their family for all of their lives, and that once those hormones were reduced or stopped, then those directives, if you will, took a back seat and now they decided that they were going to look after their own lives for a change. Do you Have you heard of that? What, what are your thoughts on that? I've heard of that. There are absolutely very significant hormonal changes that occur. Um, whether or not it is causally linked to why some women sort of sit back and take stock, you know, we're making in- interesting generalizations because although there certainly are partnerships that shift at midlife, there are other partnerships that are strengthened. So we have to kind of always look at both sides of the um, coin. And sometimes partnerships, partnerships that break up at midlife are related to the partner as opposed to the woman who might be the person experiencing changes related to menopause. The hormonal shifts definitely can also interfere with sleep and definitely can also interfere with mood. So there are multiple different factors that can be Um, influencing these things. Developmentally and socially, a lot of women at midlife have children that are getting a little bit older and are becoming more independent. And so that um, concept of, quote, empty nest, if they've had children, may become important. And the need and um, pressure for them to put huge amount of focus on children that really need a significant amount of guidance and daily assistance may shift because those children may be more independent. They're potentially um, finishing high school or starting university or finishing university or whatever they're doing post-high school. And some of those life events clearly are an important influence on where a woman and also a man, if there's a male partner, put their influence and energy. I think that um, couples who've been married for a long period of time prior to having children find a big shift in their priorities and focus and daily activities once children enter the relationship. And that shift occurs again when children are becoming more independent and able to kind of leave the nest, so to speak. So I think there are multiple different factors. I don't think we can say it's just hormones. The other thing is that um, women who experience menopause early because of having had surgery in which both the uterus and both of the ovaries are removed um, because the ovaries have to be taken out to create the hormonal change, we don't necessarily see young 40-year-old women who had to have their uterus as well as their ovaries removed because they necessarily, you know, maybe they had some kind of medical problem that required it. Um, they don't necessarily disconnect themselves from the family and feel like they don't need to be supportive of their young children at that time. So I think there's many more factors than just the hormones. You said that hot flashes were the number one driver of women to seek help. What exactly is behind the hot flashes? Is it the hormones? What would you say is the, the cause behind the hot flashes? Hormones are definitely related, but I want to back up a little bit. I said I think that um, hot flashes are the number one reason that women come to see me, and I'm a consultant, so they first see their own clinician, and then their clinician refers them to me. So usually I end up seeing people who have either seen their primary care person, like their internal medicine clinician, and or their OBGYN clinician, but their hot flashes are still a problem, and then they end up getting bumped over to me. The number one reason that perimenopausal women seek care is because of irregular bleeding. Postmenopausally, it is still usually hot flashes, but I just wanted to make sure that I kind of put that out there because perimenopausal women may not seek care for hot flashes even though they might be experiencing them. So what triggers a hot flash is interesting debate. There are shifts in the luteinizing hormone as well as the um, follicular stimulating hormone that increase with um, menopause, and those hormones are trying to encourage the ovaries to produce estrogen and progesterone to create a regular menstrual cycle. Once a woman gets into perimenopause 
in postmenopause, it's increasingly difficult for the ovaries to continue to produce those hormones, and so it doesn't occur. The, um, there have been several theories about exactly which hormone shifts happen to cause a specific hot flash coming across, um, and I think it's still up a little bit for debate. There's an LH surge that happens, but it's right after a hot flash, not before. One thing that we know that happens for sure is that the thermoneutral zone shrinks. I think you should all like throw that out at your next cocktail party. The thermoneutral zone is this very discrete temperature range that your core body temperature has to maintain in order to feel normal. If you get above the range, you're too hot, and if you get below the range, you're too cold. One of the things that happens with women at midlife is that that range shrinks. It's not a huge change because it's a tiny range to begin with. However, it shifts enough that when your body temperature, the core temperature starts to get hot, it's a hot flash and your body is unable to stop it. And the woman sweats and becomes uncomfortable for a few minutes in order to try to lower the body temperature. So the same thing happens for premenopausal women when they're exercising and your body core temperature increases, you sweat in order to maintain your body temperature at a more normal rate, more normal range. When the hot flash happens and the core temperature gets too high, women frequently will sweat and become uncomfortably hot and then the body core temperature sort of overreacts and they get too cold. And some women experience um, cold sweats and cold chills either related to or separate from hot flashes. And so there is a hormonal link in the relationship of the hormone receptors and how they help to regulate that thermoneutral zone, that little range of normal core body temperature. And the body's ability to keep the core temperature right in that tiny range um, becomes somewhat impaired. And that's what causes hot flashes and cold sweats. I read from a physician, I think it was in her book, that there was an emotional causal relationship with hot flashes and the best that I understood from her description was that women who had unresolved emotional conflicts so when they reached menopause there were things in their lives that they were unhappy with that they had not dealt with them that that was a trigger for hot flashes, that women who had found a balance of happiness in their lives were a lot less likely to have hot flashes. Have you heard that, and what are your thoughts about it? There's quite a bit of research that supports the concept that stress increases the frequency of hot flashes. I haven't seen um, research studies that specifically compared frequency, intensity, duration, of hot flashes among women who we know for sure have unresolved issues versus women that we know for sure have resolved their issues. I would venture that most of us have at least something in our closet, right? But we do know that stress absolutely has a negative effect. And I would imagine that for women that might be carrying internal conflict, that their trigger to stress is probably lower than other people who might feel more settled in their life. So I can imagine that that link makes a lot of sense. The research that I have read that talks about stress, identifies the cortisol hormones and um, that those may precipitate hot flashes because of the hormonal cascade, making it more difficult for that tiny, normal temperature range to stay where it's supposed to. The other thing to think about is, you know people say when they get aggravated, they're getting, quote, hot under the collar. Even when you're not in the context of menopause and experiencing all these other crazy symptoms, you certainly can physically feel hot when you get really frustrated or stressed or angry about something. And because that tiny range of normal body temperature is so specific and difficult to maintain, when that happens to women, it absolutely can trigger hot flashes. Now, do the hot flashes disappear after a while, or are there, is there a group of women who have flash, hot flashes for all their lives after they've reached menopause? The answer is yes to both. What normally happens is hot flashes begin premenopausal and peak um, around two to three years postmenopausal um, and then take a big decrease around seven years postmenopausal. The truth also is that there are some women who continue to have hot flashes for 30, 40 years 
after menopause is over. So it depends very much on the individual. And you mentioned something earlier about there being sort of a familial link. Um, we have found that there are some correlations in that women, um, if their mother has experienced a normal menopause and an older sister has experienced a normal menopause, meaning there wasn't any surgery and there weren't any medical problems that influenced it, chances are that they're a little bit inclined to experience menopause around the same age. Similarly, if the mother and the sister experienced more severe symptoms early on and then had less severe symptoms later or their symptoms stopped completely, there's a bit of a familial link that that might be similar. Having said that, there's also a huge number of environmental factors that affect hot flashes and they can be different between siblings and parents. One of the most notable is smoking. Smoking is associated with earlier menopause and more severe hot flashes. So if one sibling smokes and the other one doesn't, that seems to trump the family card about um, having a correlation around age and similar presentation for hot flashes. You mentioned vaginal dryness a couple of times earlier and discomfort. Is this an ongoing thing, something that's occasional, something that happens only during intercourse or sexual relations. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, and this is another one of the primary reasons that a lot of women are referred to see me. Um, Around the time of menopause, because estrogen is very important in maintaining the um, moisture in the vaginal area, women don't notice any difference. Starting two, three, five years after menopause and the um, decrease in hormone levels become more constant. Prior to menopause, the hormones jump all over the place. So there could be occasions when a woman experiences vaginal dryness. It's not as common to be consistent. Post-menopause, it's sort of a downward um, gradient, if you will, that over time there might be a little bit of dryness, a little bit of discomfort that may only be noticed during sexual activity because that's when the stimulation happens and the secretions would normally increase and the tissue is unable to provide all that extra lubrication. Over time, the lubrication to maintain comfort just for walking around sometimes can be very difficult um, for women in that the tissue becomes so dry that when they try to walk, it's like the walls of the vagina are kind of sticking together and rubbing on each other. We have several different treatments that are available to help women with those symptoms. The simplest and the one that lots of women end up using just, you know, by hearing about it from their friends and colleagues is lubrication with sexual activity. So whenever anything is going inside the vagina to lubricate that to make sure that it doesn't catch on the tissue and cause injury. Another thing that is common or that you hear about, I don't know in in fact, how common it is, is that there is a weight gain associated with menopause. Is that true? Absolutely. Um, What happens with age and also with menopause because of the shift in hormones? So there's kind of two things against women. Number one, as we age, our body's general metabolism and use of nutrients shifts so that If you compare a 30-something-year-old woman to a 50-something-year-old woman, um, they can't eat and exercise exactly the same to maintain the exact same weight. It just won't work. I have women that come to see me, and they are absolutely adamant and angry and tell me that I'm eating exactly what I've always eaten, I'm exercising exactly the same, and I'm still gaining weight. And I say, of course you are. And then they look at me like, okay, well, at least someone's hearing me. And the problem is that their body metabolism has changed and their body is unable to use those calories as efficiently as it used to. So the amount of calories that are necessary to maintain body weight decrease. And in order for a woman to maintain her same weight, she has to um, have more exercise and activity and take in fewer calories. Now, the big challenge is once you've gained those extra pounds and really want to try to shed them off, you need to shift that difference even greater. So more physical activity and even fewer calories. And it's really very challenging. The other difficult thing with weight and fat deposition for women postmenopausal is the loss of the protective effects of estrogen. Estrogen tends to have the fat gathered more around a woman's uh, hips. So we have that sort of reported pear shape. 
after menopause, and there are some women who have different shapes to begin with, of course, but post-menopause, women are much more likely to um, hold weight and um, gain fat in their belly, and it's called the apple shape. And the shift is because when estrogen is available, it seems to decrease what we call visceral fat. That's that deep belly fat, which is highly associated with heart disease. And heart disease increases um, astronomically following menopause as well. So the hormones are linked, and weight gain is definitely a problem. And how you go about managing it becomes more challenging because you need a greater difference between calorie intake and calorie output just to stay the same and then increase that even more to be able to lose weight. So postmenopausal, the risk of osteoporosis and the risk of heart disease skyrocket. Is that right? That's right. Women lose bone after the age of about 35 very slowly over time. Um, and when they hit menopause, it goes down quite abruptly. Men have a similar pattern, although their bone is denser to begin with. So the rate of our bone loss can be as much as 5% um, over the first few years post-menopause. Estrogen is a very important protector of bone density and bone strength. And as the estrogen levels fall and the bone receptors for estrogen don't have estrogen to link to them, some of the um, density in the bone is decreased. And like I said previously, this concern is the increased risk of fracture. So we identify this by doing a bone density test and then um, educate women about medications if it's necessary, but most importantly, exercise, which must include weight-bearing, carrying your body's own weight, as well as resistance, which means working against force. So riding a bike doesn't count unless you're working hard, pushing up hills. That would be good for your legs. Um, Aerobics are great, especially if it's mixed up with weights. Water aerobics, if there are problems with joint pain and discomfort, um, especially when the um, water weights are used, which are little handheld dumbbells, if you will, that have floaters on the end. So when you push it down through the water, you have to work really hard to get it to go down and under because it's wanting to float up to the top. So anything that creates both weight-bearing and resistance will help to maintain bone strength. Additionally, calcium and vitamin D are absolutely critical to maintaining bone strength post-menopause, heart, and also pre-menopause, so that you're at the maximum when you get there. Heart disease is also something that skyrockets in women. Um, women uh, are known to be at high risk for heart disease, and their sort of general perception is that men are at greater risk for heart disease than women. And that has been true for a long time, partly because of the disparities in um, work environments, and it used to be that men smoked more often than women. Um, our society has... Um, balanced a good bit of that over time. So women are frequently in leadership positions in businesses and have the exact same stresses that men used to experience more often than women but don't today. So those risks are there. Once the protective effects of estrogen and progesterone fall away, women pass men in the number of people who are affected by Heart disease, in fact, heart disease is the number one killer of women. And women are much, much more concerned about and afraid of breast cancer, but only one out of four women die of breast cancer, whereas one out of two women die of heart disease. So heart disease is the big killer overall. We know, of course, men and women in the developed world, in lieu of being concerned or over-concerned about breast cancer, in this case, if I'm hearing you correctly, the focus should be, in some respects, on heart disease and osteoporosis because post-menopause, those are the big threats? Correct. And breast cancer certainly remains important. <clears throat> I don't mean to, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't mean to suggest that it shouldn't be important. Um, in the public health world, we've done an incredibly good job of educating women about getting a mammogram and how important breast cancer screening is and how deadly breast cancer can be if it's not caught early and treated aggressively. That shouldn't change. But we haven't done quite as good a job in educating people about heart disease, and we have done a fairly poor job in educating people about bone health. So <clears throat> in addition to paying attention to breast health, I think we need to increase our awareness about heart disease for women do the proper screenings, which includes blood pressure testing, checking for cholesterol levels, paying attention if there's chest pain or um, regular heartbeats 
or fatigue that's not explained properly because a lot of women present with different symptoms for heart disease and also evaluating bone health and making sure that we're really paying attention to all of those issues. A lot of people believe that hormone replacement therapy is the answer to menopause. How do you feel about that? It depends on the person. Um, Hormone replacement therapy certainly is the best therapy that we have to stop hot flashes. And it's not a good choice for women that already have heart disease or who have experienced estrogen-positive breast cancer or have experienced um, GYN cancers. So while it could be helpful for certain people, it's not a good choice for other people. We also have other medications that are very effective in helping with hot flashes, perhaps not quite as effective as estrogen or hormone therapy, but certainly um, way better than nothing. So we have a lot of choices. That's one of the great things about medication options today. Um, The pharmaceutical companies have worked hard to try to find things to help us be more comfortable. In my research, some of the women um, in my study of midlife black women told me that they didn't feel like they needed to take anything. You know, they got through adolescence without any medications, and their aunts and cousins have gotten through menopause without any medications. Um, So it's very much an individual decision. Now, some women have hot flashes that are so disruptive that they can't get through a business meeting. They are up five times in the night. They can't think straight when they're, you know, at work trying to run meetings. And it's really disruptive to their lives. So it's very difficult for me to say, yes, hormone therapy is great. No, hormone therapy is terrible because it really depends so much on the woman. What is she experiencing? What's bothering her the most? And what's her own personal and family health history um, in order to look at the risks for all the different therapy treatments and what seems like a reasonable choice for her. Let's talk a little bit about osteoporosis specifically now. It seems really scary when you think that it is silent and painless and that unless you do a bone test, bone density test, you might not be aware of it until it's too late. When should you start focusing on that? Is it when you reach that that line in the sand that says you are postmenopausal? What, what should you do? Well, so I'm a bone person <laughs> because of my interest in midlife women's health. So I'm interested in people maximizing the bones that they build to begin with. So I actually think we need to start thinking about this when um, girls and men, boys are young. It's really important that they get calcium and vitamin D as they grow. It's really important that they play and exercise and try to have a healthy body habit of, um, you know, size and weight and energy expenditure so that their bone strength, which will achieve its peak around the end of the 20s or the beginning of the 30s is as high as it can possibly be. Given the fact that we're focusing on midlife women's health, that part of our lives is kind of passed by, but it's something that we can maybe do for the next generations. Once a woman gets into her mid-30s, it's really critical that that exercise remain part of of her regular routine and that calcium and vitamin D levels are maintained so that the bone strength can be maximized through that interim pre- and perimenopausal period. Once postmenopause hits, calcium and vitamin D continue to be extraordinarily important, um, as well as exercise, which I mentioned a little bit previously. The National Osteoporosis Foundation and other groups have recommended that we do routine bone density testing on all women at the age of 65 and all men at the age of 70. In addition, we do testing on individuals who are younger if they have other risk factors besides purely age that might increase their risk for bone health problems. Those things include things like certain medications, for example, steroids can really interfere with bone strength, certain disease processes like intestinal diseases that make it difficult for a person to be able to absorb calcium or vitamin D or other nutrients, in order to maintain bone strength. So people who take medications or have diseases that might increase their risk for bone health, another common one is thyroid disease, especially if someone has hyper, which is overactive thyroid. So those people who have any kind of increased risk, the other, per, the other group of people that we test earlier are individuals who sustain what we call a low energy fracture. So that would be someone who just slips on the ice, puts out their wrist to break their fall and break their wrist. 
your wrist should be strong enough to hold your weight from a standing height or below. And if not, we worry about the strength of the rest of the bones in addition if there's a problem. If there is a bone density problem, if you're watching your nutrition, if you are doing your exercises, the resistance exercises that you were talking about, and Mm -hmm. you're still losing bone, there's a lot of controversy about the options that you have to you. Would you help us understand what's out there and the pluses and the minuses? There are several different um, medications that can be used for bone treatment. Um, some of the recent research has identified potential um, risks that are associated with bisphosphonates, which is one class of medications used. Um, the good thing about osteoporosis today is that we have so many different choices. So bone health is definitely built upon calcium, vitamin D, and exercise. And that should be for people before it happens and even after if they do end up losing extra bone. So that's sort of the foundation of any treatment plan. In addition to that, then we would want people to um, maybe think about medication if they've gotten to the place where they need to um, take something because they have enough bone loss. There are quite a few different bisphosphonates that are available. They can be taken by mouth daily or by mouth weekly. Um, There are injectables that are available to be taken every six months or every year. Some of them are given through a subcutaneous, um, which is under the skin injection in like the belly, and some of them are given through the vein. Um, Some of the medications are now available Um, as generics, so that makes them less expensive and a little bit easier for people to get coverage. Some of the oral medications can also be taken once a month. So when you're deciding whether to take medication or not, I think one of the most important things is to figure out what will fit in your life because it's very difficult sometimes to stick with it and keep on taking the medication, and especially for something you don't feel, like bone loss. Um, and it's really important that people think about, well, this work, can I take it every day? Will this work, can I take it every week? Would it be better if I did it once a month on the first day of the month? Like, what's going to fit in your life? Or is it very difficult to take pills? These medications, most of them, of the bisphosphonates, you have to take it on an empty stomach with a full glass of plain water and then stay upright for 30 to 60 minutes after you swallow the pill. And the reason for that is because if you don't, Sometimes acid gets up into the esophagus and can irritate the esophageal lining and cause trouble down the road. So that's a preventive measure. But it's a hassle. And I have patients who tell me, I don't have 30 minutes, you know, in the morning. So once a week might work better because perhaps Saturday morning things are not as hectic as other days of the week when you need to be out of the house um, to make it to work at a timely fashion. Some of the other medications that are um, available by injection require a visit to the um, clinician's office and that can be a hassle for certain people. So it really depends a great deal on what's going to fit in your life and what you're comfortable with. All of the medications have some side effects, and some of the main side effects that are talked about include osteonecrosis of the jaw, which is when areas of bone in the jaw become necrotic or die and don't heal properly. This is extraordinarily rare, probably something around 1 out of 250,000 people or more it's more common in individuals that have bone cancers and are being treated with very high doses of bisphosphonates to treat the bone cancer. But it can happen in people with osteoporosis that are treated with much, much lower doses. But as I mentioned, it's extremely rare. It's also more common in people who have very invasive dental procedures, like something creating surgery in the mouth, not regular cleanings, not regular fillings. Um, Another side effect that's become of concern more recently is um, a typical fracture of the femur, and the femur is the large bone in the upper part of your legs in your thigh. There have been some patients who have been taking osteoporosis medications that ended up with a fracture in that large bone in the thigh that was not caused necessarily by trauma. They have pain in the leg, 
And then in a few days, it gets worse, and they go in to see their clinician because it becomes difficult to walk on it. And when x-rays are done, the bone is fractured in an unusual way. Some of the thoughts are that perhaps when the medication is given, the bone doesn't have a chance to turn over enough. Um, bone is a very alive tissue, and even though it seems like you grow it and then it stays there, it's actually shifting all the time. There are certain cells that break down bone and other cells that build it up, and this keeps it so that it has a certain degree of flexibility. Some of the medications are thought maybe if they're taken for too long a period of time or um, with other medications to decrease that turnover, and the idea is perhaps the bone gets a little bit brittle, and so these unusual fractures might be more likely to happen. They also are extremely rare, but people are concerned about them as they should be because they're difficult to treat. So those are some of the main side effects that are associated with certain medications. There are also several new bone therapies that are being worked on by several different companies um, that may provide options in the future. One of the new ones that just came out recently is the sub-Q medication, and it doesn't have those very long-lasting effects that the bisphosphonate medications have. So depending on the patient's background and risk factors and areas of concern, there may be different medications that can be used that would be better for their personal history. It seems challenging for patients to figure out which route to take. I'm looking here at a report that says that there have, there's an increasing number of cases of this uh, death of the jawbone or osteonecrotic osteonecrosis osteonecrosis of the jaw uh, 2,000 cases reported since 2003 and uh, thousands of reports of people who have developed conditions made to Merck specifically in relation to Fosamax mm-hmm. and then that the dental American Dental Association is recommending that Dentists avoid invasive dental procedures on patients who are taking bisphosphonates. And I'm seeing here that they cause, the the same chemicals cause chronic oral infections, atrial fibrillation, a higher risk. This this list of problems, the side effects, is pretty lengthy. But one of the things that struck me, I think, is what you mentioned a few moments ago, that they are seeing evidence that instead of helping the bone, the body build healthy bone, they're preventing new bone from being built, and they are causing fractures and preventing healing after there are fractures. Well, it's not preventing new bone from being built. So this this um, relates specifically to bisphosphonate. And bisphosphonates are a class of medication that have an extraordinarily long half-life. It's something like seven years. There are very, very, very few medications, none, that, none others that I can think of right now in this discussion, that have such a long half-life. And medications are dosed according to the half-life. So if you take a once-a-day medication, the half-life is usually somewhere between 12 and 20 hours. This medication is seven years. Wow. So when you think about that, and the medication doesn't hang out in your liver or your brain tissue, it hangs out in the bone, it stays in that tissue. So over time, the idea is now amongst bone experts, we're thinking that it may be good after people achieve a certain marker, which is sort of under discussion, like what would tell us that the bone is healthy enough to go off medication for a period of time, what's called a drug holiday. How long do you take a holiday from the medication? How do you monitor people when they're coming off? Um, even so, those, those reports of people with osteonecrosis and also the atrial fibrillation, it certainly can happen, but it can also happen for other reasons. But those are usually in individuals who are taking extremely high doses of bisphosphonates for cancer therapy. It's less common in people that take low doses of bisphosphonates for osteoporosis, although it definitely still can happen. Some of the things that we're looking at in the um, bone health world is thinking about how long should people be on therapy and what is it that increases the brittle quality of the bone. And that's one of the things about these bisphosphonate medications that have this extraordinarily long half-life 
and stay in the bone tissue is that over time, that bone replacement that's supposed to happen where some areas of bone that are older get broken down by the body and then rebuilt with healthy, new, fresh bone tissue because your bones have to have a certain degree of flexibility or every time you bump your hand on the doorknob walking down the hall, you know, you'd break your finger because it would be brittle like china. So the concern is that with some of these medications that are used for a very long period of time and stay in the bone for a very long period of time, that there may be an increased risk of that bone becoming brittle, that it doesn't have that softness and flexibility that really healthy bone does. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that having a... Um, a typical fracture is impossible with other bone therapies. It has happened. We don't have a lot of data to indicate incidence and frequency yet because the bisphosphonates have been around the longest and we know the most about how they work. So it'll be interesting to see how things develop over a period of time. There is a uh, calculator that we use. It's an algorithm that helps clinicians to decide the risks of therapy and whether it's a cost analysis that's beneficial to the patient for them to be on treatment or not. It's called FRAX, F-R-A-X, and you can find it on the web. It's available on the internet for anybody. And you put in information. This instrument, the algorithm can be used for different countries. When you go on the page, you can choose United States, and then you can choose your ethnic group. And then you input data, how old you are, how tall you are, whether you smoke, whether you take steroid medication, whether you have rheumatoid arthritis, whether you've had a family member with a hip fracture, and so forth. There's several different um, pieces of data that are in, put in. And if the results demonstrate that you're above the cutoff, it suggests that it would be cost-effective to use the medication. Even with all that information, it really is a very personal decision, and the risk of fracture has to be weighed against potential risks of any medication, including calcium tablets. Some people, well, that's kind of a different discussion because there are different types of calcium tablets to take, but some people are extremely uncomfortable if they take calcium carbonate in particular. Um, they might find it constipating, and it can disrupt their daily life, and they just don't feel like it's worth it. So you have to kind of go down the checklist and think through every single step. It is very complicated. I completely agree. Actually, on that topic of calcium, I have also read reports that say that there's controversy around the calcium supplement intake. There are people who say that calcium supplements actually cause your body to leach more calcium. Have you heard about that? Yes, I have heard about that. So the problem is if you're not absorbing it properly, then you can run into problems. Um, there are two main types of calcium that are taken. Calcium carbonate, which is the calcium found in Tums or other similar supplements, and calcium citrate, which is the calcium found in Citricale and other similar supplements. Calcium carbonate must be taken when the stomach is acetic. So it has to be taken with food. When you eat, your body produces acid in the stomach to break the food down and absorb the nutrients. When you're not eating, the acid level in your stomach is much lower. Calcium carbonate requires an acid environment for it to be absorbed. Calcium citrate doesn't require an acid environment. Many people in our world take um, what we call PPIs, proton pump inhibitors. It's medications that help decrease the amount of acid that's produced in the body, and that would include things like Prilosec and Prevacid. Some of them are available over the counter now. Also, uh, histamine 2 blockers, which are things like Zantac and Tagamet that are also available over the counter. When a person is taking those medications, it decreases the amount of acid that's in the stomach to begin with, so calcium carbonate cannot be absorbed at the level that it should be. Calcium carbonate is also associated with some side effects that some people are bothered by, like constipation and bloating and gassiness. The calcium citrate is much less likely to cause those problems. Both calcium carbonate and calcium citrate are available in products that also have vitamin D in them, so you're getting both supplements at the same time. Um, one of the important things about taking the calcium is to make sure that you take it at a time that your body can absorb it, and you can only absorb about 500 milligrams at a shot. 
So if you're going to take 1,200 milligram of the supplement, you need to spread it out over the course of the day. The other controversy that's come up with calcium, I'll go ahead and bring it up, is whether or not it increases heart disease. There was one study that showed some potential question about whether it made the blood vessels around the heart stiffer. A more recent study has said, in fact, that's not the problem unless a person overdoes their calcium. So it really is important to evaluate how much calcium you get in your regular diet through milk, yogurt, dairy, um, and other fortified products, and then make sure that you're only taking enough to get you to what you're supposed to take. And in women postmenopausal and in men um, past the age of 70, the dose for daily is 1,200 milligrams. I just happened to have seen yesterday the nutritional recommendations from the Harvard University folks, and they actually stopped short of advising against dairy consumption. They don't quite say so, but they tell you to limit your intake. Uh, I forget what the quantity was, but it was relatively low. Have you heard about that, and how does it relate to this calcium intake that that you need in order to strengthen your bones. I haven't seen that exact um, publication. It would be interesting if you could share it with me, although I do get the Harvard Nutrition newsletter. Um, Part of the concern with dairy is heart disease because most dairy products are quite high in fat, so I'm not exactly sure what their focus was. Um, The National Osteoporosis Foundation says that the best way to get calcium is through food because your body absorbs it and uses it differently than supplements. However, there was very large um, national study done looking at vitamin and supplement use in adults, and they found that several different vitamin and supplement types increase overall mortality with the exception of calcium and vitamin D. So my thought is that it's best to get it through your diet, and it's hard for some of us to do that, If you choose dairy as one of your main sources, which many of us do, it's very smart to use lower-fat options, skim milk or 1% milk, um, the low-fat yogurts, and lower-fat cheeses. If you're not getting 1,200 milligrams, a full serving, which is, uh, you know, a glass of milk, contains about 300 milligrams of calcium. The same is true of a regular serving of yogurt, which is about 6 ounces. If you have three servings of milk in a day, you're getting 900 milligrams. The goal is 1,200. So you can either bump it up one more, which then you have to take something else out because remember we talked already about the difficulty of maintaining weight, or you can take a portion of a supplement. A lot of the supplements are uh, five or 600 milligrams. The other thing about supplements, just as an aside, you have to read the label very carefully because almost all of them are labeled for 500 or 600 milligrams, but it's in two pills. So one pill is only 250 or 300 milligrams. So you have to read the label very carefully to make sure that you're taking the right amount. The best is through the diet. Remember that greens have a lot of calcium in them, spinach, kale. Um, some of us don't like cooked spinach, but fresh spinach salads are a fantastic way to get calcium in. And that actually brings me to something I have been wondering. Is the calcium and nutritional content the same for raw versus cooked? So, for example, I know that some vegetables need to be cooked in order for their nutritional value to come out. But on the other hand, some things, when you cook them, lose their nutritional content. Mm -hmm. In the case of those two that you just mentioned, kale and collard greens, does it matter should you be eating them raw or cooked? Um, it depends a little bit on how you cook them. If you saute them in a pan and then eat everything that's there, the chances are that you're going to get most of the nutrients. When you lose nutrients, it's usually when things are boiled. If you do um, kale in a soup or if you do spinach in a soup, um, you're more likely to get some of the nutrients because it will be in the fluid that's in the soup. If you boil them, in water and then discard the water, you'll see that the water has a yellowy-green color to it, and that means that it has pulled some of those nutrients out. The best way to cook most foods is either to steam them or blanch them, saute them very briefly just so they're hot in order to maintain most of the nutrients in them um, rather than not. As far as spinach is concerned, you can cook out the nutrients, so salads are a great option. Same thing goes with kale. And collard greens? 
I can't tell you that I've done specific research on collard greens, but my guess is that it's going to be the same because it's really in that same family. So you can eat them raw or cooked? Correct. What are your thoughts on strontium? Oh, strontium malleate? There have been several studies looking at whether or not that will be a beneficial medication option. And right now the data is inconclusive, suggesting that it could be helpful, but we don't have enough strong data to make us want to use it. The interesting thing is that it's used in some other countries, and it's available here as a supplement in some situations. I have not seen data suggesting that it's harmful. If somebody is taking a bisphosphonate, I would not recommend they take it unless they discuss it with their clinician first. Because of the previous discussion that we already had suggesting that those medications stay in the bone for a very long period of time, and when you add together different substances and medications that affect bone turnover, there's always that concern that you're slowing the turnover down so much that the bone could become sort of a frozen bone or a very brittle bone. That's not true with calcium and vitamin D. Everybody needs those. They don't affect turnover outside of the fact of giving the nutrients that are necessary to build new bone. But it can be true of someone taking both of this phosphonate and hormone replacement therapy, for example, because those two things affect bone turnover. And that's why I brought it up when you asked me about um, strontium malleate. What three suggestions would you share with our listeners, Ivy, that they can take back to their lives? And I know there are a lot of individual factors and that listeners need to check in with their doctors for their specific circumstances and their own health conditions. But just in general, what three suggestions would you leave them with for menopause and then for osteoporosis in terms of things that they can do themselves to manage their own health? Okay, um, you're right, there are way more than three, but let me pick the top ones. Um, with hot flash management, we really didn't talk that much about lifestyle changes, but there are some foods and common daily things that can interfere and increase hot flashes. So I'm going to talk about hot flashes because those are the most common reasons that um, women end up seeking care. And um, it's important to know that stress can be a trigger. So anything that you're able to do in your life to help modify and control stress and control your response to it is really important. Caffeine can be a trigger, and it doesn't have to be hot. It could be cold caffeine. It could be caffeine in chocolate. So um, that's an important dietary um, change. The other thing to think about related to diet is alcohol. Alcohol can be a trigger for hot flashes. Remember that hot flashes in sleep are directly related to mood and cognitive functioning. And I think that those are links that sometimes people aren't always putting together. So if you're finding yourself in a situation that you're repeatedly interrupted at night in sleep and it's interfering with your ability to feel good and function well, um, I think it's appropriate to seek care. So try to manage stress levels. Avoid things that you identify as triggers. Some common ones include caffeine and alcohol and pay attention to how hot flashes might be interfering with sleep. Well, another thing we didn't talk about is exercise, and exercise has been demonstrated to help decrease hot flashes because it helps the body to increase its ability to manage that narrow, normal body temperature. For osteoporosis, the top key things are to remain active. We talked about um, exercise needing to be both resistant and weight-bearing. Make sure that you're absolutely getting the adequate amounts of calcium and vitamin D in your diet. And the third thing would be to be very cautious and thoughtful about fall risk. It sounds ridiculous, but as we age, our response times and ability to see in the dark decreases. It's very common for people to get up in the night to use the restroom or maybe because you have a hot flash or whatever and trip over something. And the risk of fracture is really not present unless you fall or ran into something that has enough force to cause a break. So if there's things that you can do to clear your pathways, make sure there's a nightlight or whatever so that you're able to get up and move around 
safely in times that might increase risk for fall, that will also decrease the probability of having problems. So active exercise with resistance and weight bearing, calcium and vitamin D at the appropriate levels to maintain and protect bone strength, and preventing falls. Thank you for joining us from Killingsworth, Connecticut. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it very much. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Ivy Alexander, Ph.D., APRN, ANPBC, FAAN, who is professor at the Yale University School of Nursing, who discussed menopause and osteoporosis. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com. 